and the rest of February, and and really excited about that. And and the series is called Big Butts, and uh, you know maybe not the the big butts that you're thinking of. Uh, we are a, a, a G-rated church, but uh, big butts, and and the subtitle is objections to faith or things that would prevent people from following. Jesus. And, and I would just say this, that uh, for most of us in the room, uh, you've probably had some of these objections at some point or another. And if you haven't, you probably know someone that has. Probably had a conversation and you're like, hey, come to my church. And they're like, you know what, I, I would believe in that whole God thing, but. Or, you know, hey, I just want you to know I'm praying for you. Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, but what about this? And so some big things, I call them big butts, that, that I think if we could address, there would be a lot of people that would consider really seriously giving their life to Jesus and following him. And I would say this, I think a lot of us have had some of these big butts, and I think some of us know people that have. And here's the reality. I think what we're going to talk about over the next three weeks applies to every single person in this place. If you say, well, I've been a Christian for 20 years, 10 years, or a year, or whatever, I, I promise you, you're going to run into people in your life that as you're trying to reach them for Jesus, they're going to say, yeah, I don't know about the whole Christian thing, but what about this? And you need to know what you would say. You need to know a response to that. And for some of you at Pathway, we're all about helping reach the unchurched. We want to be a church that unchurched people love to attend. And so for some of you that maybe are new, maybe you've just been here for a week or two, maybe today's your first day and somebody just bribed you with free lunch after we're done today. And, and some of these things, you're like, I have wondered that. I would, I would be a follower of God or Jesus. I'd believe the whole Bible, Christian thing, but... And so what, what, we, what I have done uh, is done a lot of research in this topic. It's a topic that I personally enjoy talking about. Um, if you want a fancy word, it's called apologetics. But uh, I, I really enjoy that. And, and there's what I would look at, I've read a lot of atheist articles, agnostic articles, uh, and just people who are like, you know, I, I, not that I'm atheist or agnostic, I just don't really believe. And so I've read a lot, I've done a lot, a lot of research on that. And I've, I've come away with what I believe are the top maybe nine or ten reasons, the big butts that people have against Christianity or against God. And so at Pathway, we just want to expose those, talk about those openly, be real, be honest about each of them. And I think there's three kind of main categories of that. And the first one we'll talk about today is God. And then the next one next week is Jesus. And then the one after that is just Christianity in general. And so, you know, people are like, well, yeah, but is the Bible really reliable? Is the Bible accurate? Yeah, but uh, it, did Jesus really raise from the dead? And so I'm telling you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you need to be here for the next three weeks because we're going to address these topics that someone in your life will eventually ask. And maybe you know that person. And you're like, look, I don't know all the answers, but I think my pastor does and maybe he doesn't. But just come to my church because we're going to talk about some of these topics. This is a perfect series for your friends that don't know Jesus. And even if you sitting out there do, this is a great series for you as well. And, and I want to, we're going to base all this on, on really one main verse that we're going to talk about for the next three weeks. We'll have some other verses every week. But, but really what we're going to do, this is all biblical. Because in the New Testament, there's a book called First Peter. It's the same Peter that was a close follower and friend of Jesus. The same Peter that walked on water, if you, if you know. Uh, the same Peter that denied Jesus three times. And it was that same guy. Later on, he kind of continues to grow and mature. He writes a letter to some Christians and in the first century. And this is what he says in First Peter chapter 3, verse 15. says, and if someone asks about your hope as a believer, as a Christian, Always be ready to explain it. 
So if someone comes up to you and says, man, why do you have so much joy? Why did you have so much peace during the, the COVID or during the economic or during the political of you? I mean, why are you different? According to what God says for you, you should be ready to give an answer and explain it. Not just, well, I love Jesus. Well, that's great, yeah, but, but they're going to come back and say, yeah, but what about Jesus with this? Or, yeah, but that. You should be ready, this is biblical, to give a response to your faith. And so that's the main theme of the next couple of weeks. And today we're going to look at big butts when it comes to God. Some of the big objections that people have. And we're going to look at um, what I think is a great verse, a launching point for this. Uh, it's in the New Testament as well, a letter called Romans. A guy named Paul wrote that to some Christians. He was a guy that had some big butts about Christianity, didn't believe in Jesus, but later converted and gave his life to Jesus, and his life was radically changed. And later he writes to some Christians that lived in Rome. And unlike America today, and, and although it's rapidly changing, Christianity in Rome and really in the first century was a very minority religion, if you will. And it was a very persecuted religion. I mean, you wouldn't just, it would be like being a Christian in China today. It's a, that's kind of comparable how it is. If they find out you're a Christian, you're going to be ostracized, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be persecuted. And, and Paul writes this letter to some Christians in Rome, and this is what he says in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Even Gentiles or non-Jews who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing Right. And so what he's saying there is this, and, and, and I would just say the first thing people sometimes ask me is, um, you know, hey, if I wasn't a, if I was born on a desert island and I didn't have the Bible or church, would I, you know, how would I know about God or Jesus? And that's a great question, which I think leads to the first big but, and this is the biggest one of all, because if you don't get this one answered, none of the rest of them honestly matter. So this is the most important. And that's simply this, is that, but does God really exist? How many times have you maybe heard somebody say, if you can prove that God exists, I'll believe it. Yeah, but does God, is God really real? Does he really exist? That's the, that's the number one foundation. And Romans chapter 2 answers that, I think, quite clearly. Because if you read that again, he gives two main ways that everybody knows clearly that God is real. It's just a matter of do they acknowledge it or not. And the first one, he says, it's, it's a law of, of nature, if you will. So when they look at nature, when they look at the universe, the cosmos, that they look around and they say something created this, something or someone designed this. It didn't just randomly happen. It's not just a collection of random atoms that got together and exploded in a big bang. No, that's so illogical that, that somehow through nature there was an intelligent design behind this. I mean, honestly, that's the most logical thing. In fact, if you research this, as I have, more scientists today, not even Christian scientists, more scientists today are rapidly moving away from the Big Bang Theory because it is so illogical and honestly foolish. And they're moving closer and closer to an intelligent design understanding of the universe. And we could get into all kind of details. Each one of these, by the way, would take like an hour to fully unpack. And, and, uh, but, but this is what they're saying. Look, the Bible says, look at nature. C.S. Lewis, a famous Christian author from England, said it like this. He gave an, uh, an example in a book uh, called Mere Christianity. It's a great book. And he said this, if you and I were to walk up to a garden, 
we would first, from a distance, observe the garden and say, this is chaos. It, there's, there's plants over here and flowers over here, and there's no seem to be kind of order and organization. It's just chaos. It doesn't make sense. But the closer we get to that garden, and the more we observe why the plant was put there and how it was put there, the more we realize, no, this was not chaos or accident at all. This was created and designed on purpose and for a purpose. So it is with the universe. The more that NASA spends billions of dollars researching the universe, the more that they come to conclude that this isn't just random or an accident, the more they study the complexity of the human DNA, the, the genome system, and the more they can, the, the complexity of animals, they realize there's no such thing that they just magically evolved over years. No, this was created on purpose and for a purpose. It's nature. When you observe it, when you observe the universe and nature, you realize maybe it's not the God of the Bible, but, man, this was created on purpose for a purpose. Here's the next one that he gives is that it's, it's what I call morality or the law of, of, of just humans, the law of people, morality. So he says this, look, the first one is when you observe nature, you cannot walk away and say, no, that's just random. No, you would walk away saying, I don't really know who or how, but, but someone created that. The next one is your own consciousness. Now think about this. No one has to tell you, I don't care what culture you're from, I don't care how much money you have, no one has to tell you, no matter what age in your life, from a young child to an adult, that murder is wrong. We don't need the Constitution or the laws of Oklahoma or the laws of Canadian County to let us know murders. Honestly, you don't even need the Bible to tell you that murder is wrong. It's instinctively in a human being. People all over the world for all time have known murder is wrong. They know that lying is wrong. They can't maybe all fully explain why, but they just know that there's just, it's just not right. Well, why? I don't know. It's just something in me that tells me it's wrong. That's called your conscience. And the one that put that in your life is God. As a default setting. So your conscience tells you right from wrong. And look, and, and, and so some people might say, yeah, you know, I really don't believe in the Bible. And, and, and so I would say this, where did your conscience come from? It didn't come from your parents. No, because you, you know instinctively, it's, it's, it's animalistic that this is right or wrong. It didn't come from the laws of the country because you just know it's right or wrong. Here's the other thing. If you say, well, I don't really believe in the Bible, and, and you know, but does God really exist? And, and I would say this, that, that if that's true, let's just say this whole Big Bang Theory is true, then, then, then we would have to logically walk away and understand that if you and I are just a random collection of atoms and everything around us is a random collection of particles, you're just, a, you were just, you're just random that you're here, random atoms that put together and formed you. If that's true, as many as some believe, then logically it follows that anything goes, right? I mean, if I'm just randomly here, then it doesn't really matter what I do because I wasn't created on purpose. It's just an accident that I'm here. And so, therefore, it doesn't really matter if I murder someone. It doesn't matter if I cheat on my taxes. Nothing matters. It's all random anyway. And if that's true, that leads to chaos. And then you say, well, okay, maybe not believe that, but I'm going to follow the, maybe not the laws of God or whatever, but the laws of the land. Okay. Well, what happens when the laws of, of our country affect the laws of someone in India? Their laws are against ours. Or what if the laws of India are against the laws of Brazil? Are we to say the United States laws are better than the laws of India? Or the laws of India are better than Brazil? Who's the one going to judge that? I mean, we're all equally human beings. 
So now we have another problem. And then you say, well, I would follow what, what is culturally acceptable. That's what I, you know, I understand everything you said. I would maybe agree, but I'm going to follow what's culturally acceptable. Well, there's a problem there too. Because the things in American culture that were widely accepted 10 years ago are widely shamed today. You hear cancel stuff all the time. Years ago was acceptable. Not saying it's right or wrong, but it was at that time, but now it's unacceptable. Things that were unacceptable 10 years ago are openly and proudly celebrated. You can't follow culture because culture can't make up its mind. Culture is chaos. Culture just follows whatever's good in the moment. Now you have a real problem because you can't follow the laws because your laws aren't better than anyone else's. Or what if they conflict? You can't follow our culture because they change all the time. Doesn't it then make logical sense that you're going to follow something or someone that is higher, that is bigger, that is greater, that we just sang about, than all human understanding, than all laws, that is the ultimate supreme creator and judge? I'd say yes. It's, again, it's very logical. I would say to understand that science can provide facts but not meaning. Science can provide facts but not morality. And, and again, I'm a big, I believe in science. I really do. You can, whatever. But even science is wrong at times. The last two years have proven that. Remember at the beginning, John Hopkins University of COVID was like, we need to have lockdowns. I mean, I watched interviews with doctors from John Hopkins. You know, shut down, lockdown, the whole thing. They came out with a report two years ago, same university. Actually, lockdowns were a really bad idea. We shouldn't have done that. You know what, I give them, I understand, they're, they're not perfect human beings. They're scientists. They have multiple PhDs. They're brilliant, but they're not perfect. Why? Because science doesn't give morality. Science can provide uh, the, the facts, but it doesn't give meaning. And science can be wrong. And I'm not disrespecting any scientists. I'm not disrespecting John Hopkins University. Please don't send me emails or whatever. Respect them, the whole thing. I get that. But for a long time, science thought the earth was flat. Some crazy people still think that, and you are absolutely absurd. Sometimes they thought that, that the earth or that the sun revolved around the earth. Again, science can be wrong because science is there just to interpret data, not give you meaning of the data. No, understand that God gives us meaning. He gives us purpose. He gives us morality of what we follow. I would say it like this, that you and I have never seen the wind. I've never seen with my eyes the wind blowing. Never seen it. Now, I have seen the effects of wind, and even today, you can go outside, and you'll see some trees and the leaves kind of bending over or the branches bending over a little bit, and, and that's not, you're seeing the effects of the wind. You're not seeing the literal wind because it's air. You can't see that. But you see what it does. When you see a branch bending over, you know that it's not, the branch didn't just wake up and say, I want to bend over today. No, something is pushing on it to bend it over. It's the wind. Although you can't see it, you see its effects. I can't see the wind, nor can you. But if I stand outside, as I was earlier, greeting all of you as you came in, I felt it against my cheeks, and it was cold. I felt it. I couldn't see it, but I could feel it blowing against my skin. So it is with God. Could you see God physically? Well, people have in the past. And if he wants to and chooses to do that in your life, then great. But for most of us, that probably won't happen. But I don't need to physically see God with my own eyes, just like wind, to observe God literally all around me. 
I see God in nature. I see God in the delivery room when my three kids were born. I see God in miracles all the time. It's just a matter of there is none so blind that chooses to refuse to believe in spite of all of the clear, compelling evidence. I would say this. I've never seen God, but I see his effects, his results everywhere. And even greater than that, I feel him daily in my life. I've never seen God. Maybe never will. Maybe I will. I don't know. But I feel him just like the wind in my life daily. And, and that's why I, I give an explanation that First Peter said to do. That's why I have a joy and a hope and a peace and an understanding that, that other people around me don't have. It's because the effects of God that I feel him in my life. If you were to go home today and there would be a book on your kitchen table, you would not say, where did this book come from? It just magically, we went to church, we come home, there's a book. It magically appeared. You wouldn't say that. It's illogical. What you would say is, huh. And as on closer observation of the book, as you opened its pages, you wouldn't say these are just a bunch of gibberish words or letters. No, as you would read it, you would realize these are words that are put together in such a way that form a sentence. And each sentence forms a paragraph. Every paragraph a page, every page a chapter. And the chapter makes the book. Now, there's a central theme here. The book is trying to communicate something to me. It's going to tell me about whatever the theme of the book is. So you would understand, it's not just a random collection of letters that are just jarbled. No, there's a purpose behind the book. There's an author, and that author wrote that book on purpose and for a purpose. So it is with the God of the universe. He created the universe, and more importantly, he created you on purpose and for a purpose. The question is, do you know that purpose? So it is in our life. I would say this as well. Here's the next one. Another, another big but when it comes to God. These are probably the top three. But what about evil? Okay, Brian, I, I, you know what, before I wasn't really sure about the whole God thing. At least now I'm 50-50. Okay, I, I respect that. Because to be honest, how, how did I come up with these? I didn't just research. I thought, man, how could I prove that God is there and, and, and come up with some of these? And there, again, there's a lot more. But here's the next one. And I believe Christian and non-Christian, every person in this room has probably asked this. Maybe you've not asked the first one, but you've probably dealt with the second one at least once, if not multiple times in your life. But what about evil? Okay, Brian, I might, I might agree that God is real. But what about, why do kids die of cancer? Why do people starve to death in third world countries? If God was really good, why didn't he stop the Holocaust? Six million Jews. I mean, if God is really good, if God is all loving and he's just this big hippie grandfather with a white beard in the clouds, why doesn't he deal with evil? I want to give you five answers, and I encourage you to write these down, five reasons Five answers to the problem of evil. And again, we could spend hours on each of these, but I'm going to give you the, what I believe are the top five. And they all are in sequential order. So you need to really lean into this, really pay attention. The first one is this. You have to understand God did not create evil. He did not. God, you, you can read the Bible, the first book of the Bible called Genesis. It means beginnings. It tells how God created the world, and it tells how evil came into the world. God did not create the sky and say, man, that looks good. Now I'm going to create some evil to mess it all up. No. No, God said, that looks good. I'm going to create people. He creates people, and he says, hey, look, I'm going to want you to manage what I've given you here, the Garden of Eden, this utopia. And, and you can do anything you want, but there's one thing I don't want you to do. Don't eat of the fruit of this one tree. 
what do they do? They eat of the fruit of the one tree, Genesis chapter 3. As a result, they disobeyed God. As a result, the entire system was utterly broken. Human beings were broken. Animals were broken. Sin and disease and evil, that's where it entered the world. Not from God. Which leads, that's the first one. God didn't create evil. You've got to understand. The second one is this. It builds off the first one. God gave Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden free will. God did not say to them, you have to obey me, and I'm going to make you obey me as if they were robots. No. He gave them quite clearly. You can't argue against it. God gave them a choice. You can choose the good and obey me, or you can choose evil and disobey me. I'm not going to force you. Why? Because I love you too much, and I want you to love me. I don't want you to love me because you have to. Valentine's Day is tomorrow. How would you love to get a card from your Valentine that says, I love you because legally we're married and I have to, right? If you Please come talk to me. We've got marriage counseling that, that I can do with you. No. I love you because I want to. I don't have to. I want to. So it is with God. He gave Adam and Eve a choice. They had free will. And they chose to not obey God but rather disobey him and do sin or evil. And that's where it came from. Now listen, before we beat Adam and Eve up too much, you and I, along with every human being on planet earth that was ever created, has the same choice. Every moment of your life, you have a choice. You can choose to do evil or you can choose to do good. Therefore, again, we're not blaming God of evil. No, evil is, is really my choice. When someone cuts me off in traffic, I can give them the one finger hello. Well, that's evil. That's choosing evil. Or I can choose to let it go. That's choosing good. Understand, didn't come from God. Free will. Now here's, here's I think, the third one that, that builds on that. There's consequences of our choices. When you and I choose evil, there's consequences. When Adam and Eve chose evil, there's a consequence that we're still paying for today. It was that serious. God takes sin that seriously. When we disobey, he doesn't just wink and nod at it like, oh, I'll forgive you, I'll let you slide. No, it's, it's that serious that it breaks everything it touches and utterly destroys. In fact, Jesus said that in the New Testament in John chapter 10, verse 10. The enemy comes to steal from you, to kill you, and utterly destroy you. But I came the opposite. I come to give you life and life abundant. What are you going to choose? Choose him and choose peace and joy. Or the other is the consequences. Now, here's the other thing about consequences that there are sometimes consequences that, uh, that you did not, it's not your fault, but you have the negative effects of other people. Six million Jews died. They didn't choose that. They were the consequences of the actions of some crazy people in Germany. Listen, there are all kinds of things in the Bible. There's things that have happened in my life, and I'm sure your life, that I chose good all the time. I chose to obey and follow God, but yet I still had to deal with the evil consequences of someone else. But leads us to the fifth one that I think is, is the most exciting. And, and you got to understand, God is all-knowing. He is supreme. Here's the fifth one. God very often, dare I say always, but very often, will use whatever evil is in your life and turn it for his good. That is the God of the Bible. Don't let anyone tell you any differently. In fact, the Bible is chock full of examples of this. I could give you example after, I'm going to give you two real quick. One in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Old Testament, the, towards the end of Genesis, the book we've been talking about, you're going to meet a guy named Joseph, real guy that really lived. Joseph was sold by his brothers into slavery. 
as a child, as a teenager. And, and then he, he became a, a slave and an employee of a high government Egyptian official. And, and during that, the Egyptian's wife, the official's wife, accused Joseph of rape, which he didn't do. He was completely innocent. As a result, he was thrown in jail again. Through a series of events, he becomes the prime minister, the second in command of all of Egypt. You think, well, that's really cool. Yeah, yeah, that's just not even like half of it. The other thing is that during that time, there was this most severe famine the world had ever faced. Severe famine and drought. As a result, where his brothers live in Israel, modern-day Israel, they said, hey, there's, everything's drying up here. we got to find food. We hear through word of mouth there's some food in Egypt. Let's go to Egypt, but if we stay here, we'll die. When they get to Egypt, the very one that was in charge of managing all human beings to make sure they survived this drought was Joseph. It was really God who used the evil intentions of Joseph's brothers to actually put Joseph in a place to save and rescue his brothers, and therefore all Jews of all time. God can use your evil and turn it to his good if you allow him. Here's another one in the New Testament. When Jesus dies on the cross, no one forced him to. Jews didn't kill Jesus. Romans didn't kill Jesus. You and I did with our sin. Listen, Jesus on the cross, you know what really Easter is, and it's in a few months, you know what really it's all about? Jesus paying for the evil consequences of you and I. When we've chosen sin over obeying God, someone has to pay that consequence. Ultimately, it should have been me and you because we're the one that committed it. But Jesus, perfectly innocent, says, I'll pay it for you so you don't have to. Why would he do that? He loves you. That's it. Jesus on the cross is paying for the negative evil consequences of you and I. But he doesn't stay dead. He's resurrected three days later. God uses it for the good of all humanity of all time. That's why Jesus came to restore us to himself, to restore us the way that God intended. And one day when you read the end of the Bible in Revelation, the last few chapters, God will restore all humanity back to what it was going to be in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. God is going to bring a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. All the evil will be gone forever. Ever. But in the meantime, he's in the process of restoring us. You know, I would, I would say it's like this, that if we had a knife, depending on whose hands the knife is in has two different consequences. If it's in the evil person's hand, they most likely will stab you and kill you with that knife. But if it's in a, a good person's hands, a surgeon, they're going to use that knife. You're still going to have some pain. But they would use the knife to cut the tumor out that's going to kill you. You understand that there is some pain involved, but it's for your good. The question is, who's holding the knife of your life? When you say, God, I don't want to hold it anymore. I need to give it to you. God, I, I trust in you. That's the answer. Here's the last one I think is, is, is really important as well. But do I really need God? And, and I believe this personally. This is the heart of every, I believe, American, is this very thing. Because the first one might say, well, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to really believe the God of the Bible maybe. I'm not there yet. But I do believe that there is a, some sort of a higher power or being. I might agree with you on that. Okay, fair enough. I respect that. And then the problem of evil, okay, I see what you're saying. That, that makes some sense. Okay. But here's, I think, the heart of every person, maybe even you. I think every church in America would be busting at the seams if people really understood the answer to this question. I think the enemy, 
Satan, the devil, uses this one to prevent more Americans from coming to faith in God than anything else. This doesn't happen in, in Africa. It doesn't happen in South America. It happens in Europe, and it happens in North America. Do I really need God? And here's the thought, and I, I respect it. I do. I understand it. Why would I go to church? I mean, Brian, I, I do believe there was some kind of bigger power, and, and, and I'm a good a person and a good American. I believe that the Bible's probably real, and, 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 you know, God's good. If I'm just a good person, then God will love me. I'll go to heaven. I mean, that, that's what uh, statistically most Americans believe. But do I need him daily in my life? No. I'm not being disrespectful, but I just don't because, Brian, I've got a great job. I mean, i got an awesome job. I have a fantastic family. I mean, my family is phenomenal. My kids are great. My wife, my husband, they're great. I've got good health. i got a great home. My life is good. I just don't see a need for God. I mean, maybe if I was dying or something or I was in a third world country, I could understand that to give me some hope. But, but really, man, I live in the most prosperous nation on the earth, and, and I'm good. I just don't need him daily. I would say this, that if we were to interview my dog, who's 14, the cutest animal ever. If we were to interview her, I think the first thing she would say is, please give me a breath mint, my breath hurts. The next thing that my dog would probably say, her name's Callie. Hey, Callie, is everything good? Do you need anything? No. I mean, you, you take care of me. I eat when I need to eat. I can sleep. You let me out to go to the bathroom. My life's good. Really, when you say, I don't need God because my life's good, you're watering down your entire existence as a human being on the same level of a simple dog animal. I'm not being disrespectful, but that's what you're doing. Can I tell you this? Life is more than your job. It's even more than your health, and it's even more than your family. Life is more than those things. Jesus said that in the New Testament in Matthew, the first book. And Matthew was a follower of Jesus. And Jesus says, what good is it if you gain the whole world and, and you've got all that you need, but you lose your soul? Does it matter? Are you even living for the right thing? Because just living to, to, to be in existence is, is really a pathetic existence, I think. There's more for you. Jesus wants to give you life abundant. I would say this. You have to understand that Jesus, life gives stuff, but Jesus gives purpose. Life can give you stuff all day, but it cannot give you purpose. Like science can give you data, but it can't give you meaning or morality. Life can give you stuff, your job, can, but it doesn't always give you meaning. Only Jesus He came to completely transform you from the inside out. Everything else in your life is, is on the fringes. It's the outside at my job. It's, it's out there. My family is much, but they're out there. Only Jesus can change you from the inside out, what no one else can do. Your job can't do it. Your family can't do it. Your health can't do it. And I would say this as well. Really what you're saying is, and I mean this with all due respect, but just please hear me. When you're saying, I don't need God, what you're actually saying is, I don't need God. Why? Because I'm in control. I'm in control of my life. I've got a good job. i got a good family. I have good health. I'm in control. Therefore, I don't need God. In other words, I mean this with all due respect, but what you're really saying is, I am God of my own life. Why would I need him? I'm in control. I'm God of my life. Here's my question to you. And you know deep down, 
you know this to be true. What happens when you lose control? What happens when something happens to you that is clearly outside of your control? What happens when you do lose your health? And it is cancer. It is something horrific. What do you do when you have trouble in your family? You're, you're having trouble with your teenage kids. You're having trouble with your spouse. What happens when you lose your job? And it's very difficult to find another one that, that, that is on the same pace scale of where you're at. What happens when things in your life happen that are out of your control? Now all of a sudden, you're begging for God to come in and to help you. And he does, and he will, because he loves you, and he's a God of grace. Here's some truth of, of what I would say is when things happen out of your control, I, I think there's, there's really three things why you need God. There's, there's so many more. I'm just going to give you what I believe are the top three. Why you need God daily in your life. Again, be it like an hour conversation. I'm going to give you the top three. I think it's because you think you're in control, which really tells me you're not. And you think you're God of your life and you're really not because you're not created to be the God of your own life. Only God is. And therefore, you need to be rescued. And I, you need to be rescued from yourself, first of all. You need to be rescued from that mindset that I'm in control. I call the shots. I'm the shot caller of my life. No, you're not. You might be in this moment. You might be this year. But there's a tidal wave coming that will knock you on your backside and prove you're not in control. You need to be rescued from yourself. You really need to be rescued from being in control. I can tell you this. Whenever you're in control, God is not. And whenever God's in control, you're not. I'd rather God be in control. Why? Because he created me. He is all-knowing and all-powerful. And I can sleep better at night knowing that he sits on the throne of my heart rather than myself. I know myself, and I'm a good guy. I'm not that good. I'm a smart guy. I'm not that smart. It would stress me out that I'm the God of my own life. No. I'd rather leave it to the God that really is God. You need to be rescued from yourself, being in control. Here's the next one. You need to be rescued from being separated from God for all time. Here's the thing. When eternity becomes reality in your life, and it will, you can deny everything else we're talking about. I respect that. But I guarantee you one thing is factual. Eternity is real. Like the wind. Never seen it, but I know it's there. When eternity becomes a reality for you, you take your last breath here, your first breath in eternity. I believe you're going to meet God more than your dead relatives. You're going to see God. And I think he's going to ask you a couple questions. I think one of the number one questions he's going to ask you is this. Did you need me on earth? Did, you, did we have a relationship when you were on earth the time that I gave you? And you can't lie because he's God. I mean, really, right? Like, he's going he's to call you out. But if you, but if you say, honestly, God, no, I just didn't know that. I, mean, I lived in America. had a great job. I had a great family. I had a great health. Everything was good. I just didn't need you every day. You know what? God's response will be in all love. Then you don't need me for eternity. And if you don't need me with the time I gave you on earth, why would you need me for all of eternity? And you're going to be separated from God forever. The Bible calls that hell. 
Yes, hell is a real, literal, physical place. It's full of demons, and it's full of an eternal lake of fire, and you're going to be burning alive, and you're going to be in an endless pit. It's gonna be, you're going to be screaming. You're going to be tortured. It's horrible. That's not the bad part about hell. It's horrific. The bad part about hell is that you're going to realize, I am separated from God forever and ever and ever, and there's no hope of ever coming back. It's done. Because God is going to say to you, and in Romans chapter 1 that we read, it gives you a more uh, clear picture of that. But God's going to say, look, I love you too much on earth to force you to love me. I love you too much now to force you to love me for eternity. And I'm going to give you now for eternity what you wanted on earth, total independence of me. If you're God of your life on earth, you can be God of your life for eternity. And it doesn't include me. Here's the, look, that's a really bad way to end a message. And it is. Here's the good thing. You need to be rescued from being in control. You need to be rescued from being separated from God. But more than that, you need to be rescued to God. You need to be rescued that he is in control of your life. You need to be rescued to his joy, to his hope, to his peace, to his purpose, and his forgiveness in your life. You're not just being rescued from hell, and a lot of times Christians present that. Yeah, that's how the other half is. I'm being rescued to something greater than hell, something greater than anything I'll ever face, and that is God, his purpose for me, and his love, and his grace, and his mercy, and that nothing will separate me from that love. That's what you need to be rescued to. And I want to give you that opportunity right now. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you so much for your truth. We thank you. For some of these big questions, these big buts of, of following you and what that means. And these are all very real, legitimate questions. But God, most of all, this last one, do we really need you? The answer is a clear, resounding Yes, I don't just need you. I desperately want you in every moment of every breath of my being, in every fiber of my life, in every cell in my body. I want you. It's beyond just that I need you in a jam or a crisis. I want you. God, may that be the heart of every person in this room. May that be the heart of every person in Canadian County and across this country and across the world. That's why we exist. That's why we're here. So that people would go from, do I really need him? I can't live without him. I want him. And there's only one way. And it's not joining our church or finding religion. It's a relationship with you to give us that purpose, peace, forgiveness. Today, as we are all praying, if that's you and you would say, you're right, I, I need him and I want to be rescued to him. I want a relationship with him. If you would just simply raise your hand, that's all we ask you to do. You don't have to stand up or come to the front, but just right where you're at, yeah, I want to give my life to him. I do need him. I'm tired of being in control. I, it's exhausting. And I, to be honest, I fail all the time at it. I lie to myself. The enemy lies to me, but I'm failing at that. I want to give it to him. If you would just simply raise your hand. Everybody else, we're just praying right now. If that's you, I want to give my life to him, to Jesus, to have his joy and his peace and forgiveness. Just raise your hand. We'd love to pray with you. That's all we ask you to do. Thank you. Let's all say this prayer together. Jesus, thank you for loving me. I believe you're God's son. I believe you died on the cross and rose again for me. 